Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. Is that new on your keyboard there? It is new. I like it. It's cool. Thanks. It's like a galaxy. Yeah. Little protection on the keys. Nice. I just finally got my computer fixed. Excellent. So I was able to type my notes up on a computer and not have to read off a small phone screen this time. Welcome to the 21st century. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> so we are in Tennessee still. Mm-hmm. Do you love Tennessee? Uh, they have a plethora of weird laws. Of I'm course. sure they do. Um, the South seems to be like really big on weird laws more than the rest of the country so far. So so far, but who knows what will happen as we get further into the interior of the country. That is true. Are there any laws pertaining to ice cream and back pockets? Surprisingly, no. Oh, okay. But there are some interesting ones. For example, if you have a bunch of logs on your property, you cannot sell any of the logs that are hollow. It's illegal. Okay. It's also illegal for more than eight women to live in the same house together because that would constitute a brothel. Brothel, yeah, mm-hmm. I figured. Okay. Interesting. I wonder how sororities get around that. Yeah, right. Uh, there are interesting laws about fishing. So, for example, you may not use a lasso to catch a fish. Why would you even try? I guess if you're really into that like country western vibe and you're like, <laughs> I can do it to a horse, I can do it to a fish. Yeah, right. Ministers in Tennessee are not eligible to hold a seat in the House legislature. That is actually a pretty good rule. Yeah, that's a nice division of a church Church and state. state, Yeah. Also, dualists or just plain old atheists are not allowed to be elected to public office in Tennessee. Dualists? Mm -hmm. So if perhaps someone has offended your honor or your lady's honor and you challenge them to To a a duel, duel. you are not allowed to run for office or hold elected office. Interesting. This is a bit of a downer, and I feel like Tennessee needs to update their laws. Uh, giving and receiving oral sex is still prohibited by law. Uh, that's actually still true in Pennsylvania, too. <gasps> yep. Rule breakers. Any kind of sodomy is apparently illegal in Pennsylvania, but I'd really like to know who actually checks for that. So, I mean, that's an interesting job. Yeah. It's totally legal to gather up any kind of roadkill and eat it. Illegal or legal? Legal. Ooh, that's not sanitary, guys. Please don't. It's a circle of life, Eden. Yeah, but ew. (laughs) If you give a minor a tattoo, it's considered a misdemeanor in Tennessee. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's not allowed other than with parental consent anywhere, so. Fair, fair. Tattooing in Tennessee is odd. I guess it was illegal for a very long time. Huh. Uh, I did get a tattoo in Tennessee one time, and it was really hard to find a place that <laughs> would tattoo you on a Sunday. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> well, you had to go on the Lord's Day, damn it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one came up over and over again. Skunks cannot be carried into the state. So if you're traveling with your pet skunk, avoid Tennessee. That really sucks. I like pet skunks. In Dyersburg, it's illegal for a woman to call a man for a date. Wow. Okay. That's really outdated and you need to change that. So much for independent women. Yeah. What do you do on City Hawkins Day? Oh God. That's probably outlawed. Don't call on the phone. Just like send a nice invitation or letter. I guess so. Maybe you can still text. I don't know. Yeah. Texting. I was going to say pass the note, but then I realized that, you know, we have text now and people don't do that anymore. (laughs) Fair enough. Oh my gosh. I take it back. It is illegal in Lexington, Tennessee. To transport an ice cream cone in your pocket. It didn't say back pocket, just as pocket, period. So any pocket. Any pocket. Wow. What is with the South and ice cream cones in your pocket? I mean, first of all, no one should really do that to begin with. Yes. But just why? 
Well, I guess it's Lexington. It could be because also you cannot eat ice cream on the sidewalk. <laughs> and if you spit on the sidewalk, you'll also be fined. So just take your ice cream and go home. Get a cup. Don't put it in your pocket. And spit into like the trash or the sink yes. or something or your own backyard. But what we had another state with a spitting law. I think there's there's a couple. I think it's pretty pretty prominent. To yeah, like not spit in public because that's just good hygiene. It is, and it's kind of rude. Like, yeah. yeah, I feel like that's probably more of a law that grew out of when people used to chew tobacco more. Probably that stuff's nasty. Yeah, it's gross. Oh, I remember back in high school because um, there was a senior privilege area which was outside. It was like this caged-in area outside the school. <laughs> it's the cage for the seniors. Yeah, pretty much we're bad and we have to live in the cage. Um, but you could go there during like lunch or study hall. It was the only way that you could eat outside is if you're a senior. Gotcha. But this place, like all the smokers would go out there and try to smoke and always get caught. So then people just started chewing tobacco out there instead. Gross. Yeah. Gross. Uh, this was hilariously outdated, but it still makes me laugh. In Memphis, it's illegal for a woman to drive a car. Unless there is a man either running or walking in front of it, waving a red flag to warn approaching motorists and pedestrians. You know. Well, because women are terrible drivers. Yeah. Look out. (laughs) Uh, Also in Memphis, panhandlers, a.k.a. people who want to beg on the street for money, must first obtain a $10 permit. Okay. Well, if they don't have any money, how are they going to get the permit? I guess that solves the problem. Mm -hmm. See, uh, panhandling is illegal in most places. I used to have to do it all the time, though, like when I would go to like this punk rock club um, in high school, it was like an underage thing that had mm-hmm. like punk rock shows and it was five dollar cover to get in. I never had that five dollars, <laughs> you guys. And I would take off whatever hat I was wearing and be like, can anybody give me a dollar until I got five people to give me a dollar so I could get in. What else are fun mm, Tennessee laws? This is interesting. I guess in Memphis, they care a lot about pie. If you are in a restaurant in Memphis, it's illegal to give any pie that you may have purchased to another diner. It's illegal to take unfinished pie home, and all pie must be eaten on the premises of the restaurant. Damn, that is some serious yeah, pie that's laws. Some serious pie law. I've heard of bylaws, but not pie laws before. <laughs> but everyone should care about pie, guys. If you don't care about pies, then, you know, just delete me from Facebook or whatever because. <laughs> We don't need to be friends with you. Yeah, I can't be friends with someone that close-minded. <laughs> so that's Tennessee weird laws in a nutshell. They were very weird. Yeah, I uh, I can't say that I'm shocked. No. Because I'm not shocked by any weird laws. I think once we're through most of the states, we should take a look back at some of the weirdest laws. We should. Top we definitely 10 weirdest should. weirdest laws. Yes. For sure. You know, ice cream cone in the back pocket is going to be there somewhere. That's so weird. I really want to dig into that. I might have to do that. Oh, I did dig into something we chatted about last week. Okay. uh, When we were talking about how Tennessee is the volunteer state. Yeah. Well, it turns out it is actually from their history. In the War of 1812, they sent a bunch of volunteers to aid fellow Tennessean Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans. And then again, in the Spanish-American War, they were asked for 2,000 volunteers from the state of Tennessee, and they sent 30,000. Oh, wow. Okay, then you know what? You guys earned the they name. definitely have earned the name, Volunteer yeah, State. absolutely. So, Nicole. Yes, Eden. You have your story? I do have a story. Nice. I know you wrote it this morning, so. And nice and fresh. Fresh in my mind. So, we're heading to Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. I have never heard of Nashville. Nashville. It's a what tiny, quaint little about? town. Yeah. You may have missed it. 
So Nashville was founded in 1779. It's the seat of Davidson County. It's the state capital, and it's the largest city by population in Tennessee. You know, just a little place. Just a tiny little place. Really, if you blink, you miss it. (laughs) The city is located on the banks of the Cumberland River, which helped it maintain its importance as a strategical and economic hub for much of its history. Nice. Uh, Nashville has long been an important shipping port as well as an industrial manufacturing hub. Today, several large companies still call Nashville home, including Asherion, Bridgestone Americas, Core Civic, Dollar General, Logan's Roadhouse, and the Ryman Hospitality Properties. Oh, right. I've heard of like two of those. Yeah. yeah. Some, like Logan's Roadhouse is a restaurant, Dollar General. Core Civics is actually a large private prison company. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Asherian is like an insurance provider and Bridgestone makes tires. So, okay. Yeah. Real smattering slew of stuff in Nashville in terms of the economy. Nashville is also home to more than 24 year colleges and universities, at least six community colleges, and 11 vocational and technical schools. That's a lot of schools. That's yeah, a lot of schools. Um, some of the best known institutes that you might be familiar with are Vanderbilt University, Frisk University, Tennessee State University. American Baptist College, Belmont University, and Watkins College of Art and Design and Film. All right. That was easy for you to say. It was. Because of all these higher learning institutes in Nashville, one of the city's nicknames is the Athens of the South. Okay. And just like the Athens in Greece, this city has its own Parthenon. Wow. Yeah, it's super cool. It was built in 1897 as part of the Tennessee Centennial Exposition to celebrate its 100th anniversary as a state. Okay. And the building is actually a full-scale replica of the original Parthenon in Athens, Greece. It is decorated with, you know, reliefs and statues that, to the best of our knowledge, were actually present in the Golden Age version of the Parthenon. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's super cool. It's one of those, like, places I would just like to go see because I know I'm not getting to Greece anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like when you're in, uh, like, Las Vegas and it's like, here's the Eiffel Tower. Yep. yep here's totally. this thing. Here's that thing. Uh, you can find other historical structures and museums in Nashville, like Bellmead Plantation, the Hermitage, which was the home of Andrew Jackson. Uh, you can find Belmont Mansion, which is a gorgeous old home. There's Marathon Village, which is a historical and retail site that is in a repurposed Marathon Motor Works factory building. Okay. There's Fort Nashboro, which is a park that is set up with replicas of Nashville's historic colonial buildings and to teach you about how it was founded. That's cool. And of course, there's Ryman's Auditorium, which was home to the Grand Old Opry. Nice. Yeah. Ryman's is really cool. You like us, Pretty much anyone who's everyone has performed at the Grand Old Opry, and then people still perform there to this day. And it's everyone from, you know, Will Rogers, Johnny Cash, Bob Hope, Harry Houdini even performed there. Oh, wow. I didn't know that one. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's really cool. And in fact, oftentimes Ryman's Auditorium has been called the Carnegie Hall of the South. Very nice. Yeah. So pretty happening entertainment scene. So if all this learning has worked up your appetite, and Eden, I know you love some, some good food, I Nashville do. has you covered. Nice. I feel like you'd super enjoy the restaurant scene in Nashville. You can pretty much find some of the most amazing food in the country. Ooh, okay. You probably know about some of the dishes that Nashville offers, like its famous spice-filled hot chicken. Okay. And then, of course, there's the Biscuits at Loveless Cafe, which is renowned for its southern food. Oh, and I love biscuits. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, when you search best place to eat in Nashville, 
it'll be like get the biscuits <laughs> at loveless cafe whatever else but get the biscuits it's also a powerhouse of other southern cuisine so it's lots of barbecue everything you would think of as like southern southern fair mm-hmm. it's also home to some of the best restaurants in the nation that have michelin stars like catbird seat and etch nice so it runs this gambit of you want some comfort food we got you covered you want something fancy we got you covered maybe you want something like thai we got you covered oh nice so it's very diverse very cool now aside from all this amazing history it has and its stellar food scene nashville is perhaps best known as its role for the home of the country music industry Numerous record labels and production companies operate in the city, and Nashville has been the second largest music production center in the United States since 1960. Which makes a lot of sense. And like I said, there is a lot of rock music coming out of Nashville as well. Mm-hmm. Aside from country music and contemporary Christian and gospel music, which mm-hmm. really drive the entertainment engine, there's tons of rock. Well, yeah, because I mean, that's considered like the Bible Belt, right? Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, This has earned Nashville the nickname of the Music City, and its music industry generates over $10 billion that impact Nashville's economy. Okay, that makes sense. So I remember a friend telling me once that everybody he met in Nashville was a songwriter, and I'm like, that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Now, the large music production industry has also created a vibrant music scene like we just mentioned. You can pretty much see any type of music you want any night in Nashville. And if you visit the famous Music Row, You'll see where it all happens in terms of the industry part of it. Okay. Music Row is actually going to be our stop for today. Really? Mm-hmm. Music Row is a historic district just south of downtown Nashville. It's home to lots of country music production studios, record labels. You can find radio stations there and a ton of music publishing houses. Very nice. During my research, several sources stated that you could consider Music Row synonymous with country music the same way you might consider Madison Avenue synonymous with the advertising industry. Okay. In other words, Music Row is the heart of Nashville's country music industry. Uh, I'm familiar with Music Row mostly from a Dolly Parton song called Down on Music Row. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. That's one that I haven't. Oh, it's a good one. It's an early 70s uh, Dolly song. And basically it's about the singer who is a newly arrived singer-songwriter in Nashville who tries to break into the music industry by visiting every single business up and down Music Row. Okay. It's a pretty upbeat song, and the chorus is down on Music Row. If you want to be a star, that's where you go. And apparently you also go there if you want to get murdered, I'm assuming, for the story that you're going to tell. Anyway, so... You, I'm sorry, I ruined it. I ruined the surprise. It's a, I mean, it's a. I think everyone knows the surprises. I'm pretty sure, too. When I was looking for a story for Tennessee... I saw a bunch of articles talking about Music Row, and they caught my eye because of this Dolly song. But this tale of greed, bribery, and murder is a far cry from the happy-go-lucky, go-getter song from Dolly that I love. Today's story is the murder of Kevin Hughes, or the Music Row murder. Okay. you know, Saying Music Row murder makes it sound familiar, but Kevin Hughes, I mean, like, I don't know that name, so I may or may not know it. I have a little something a little bit later in my story that might make me realize why you know that Murder on Music Row. Okay. What, is it another Lifetime movie with Judith Light? Even better. (laughs) Oh, God. Born in 1966, Kevin Hughes grew up in rural southeastern Illinois. He fell in love with music as a teenager and would study Billboard magazine to chart the artists that he loved. 
he was really drawn towards music that had a positive message. So stuff in the country music world. Also, he loved contemporary Christian music. One one of the articles I read said he was a big Amy Grant fan. Okay. But that he also really loved rock and roll and metal music. One of his other favorite bands was Metallica. Joan Jett also loves rock and roll. (laughs) And I bet Kevin loved Joan Jett. Because how can you not? The only Amy Grant song that ever comes to mind for me is that Baby, baby. That oh, one. I loved Amy Grant's Baby, Baby album. I, I had like a cassette tape of hers, but. So, so great 90s Christian <laughs> rock. Now, after graduating high school, Kevin headed to Belmont University to study mar- marketing and how it related to the music business. And he was right in the heart of Nashville. Belmont University is really close to Music Row. Uh, he initially had an internship with the Gospel Music Association. And then as he approached graduation, he got an internship with Cashbox Magazine. And when he was working at Cashbox Magazine, his role was basically to help calculate the weekly independent music charts. Okay. Now, Cashbox Magazine was a trade periodical for the country music industry. It was founded in 1942, and it was one of the oldest magazines to track country music. And it was really viewed as a direct competitor to other music industry periodicals like Billboard and Record World, but really just focusing on country music. Cashbox was known for their shorter jukebox charts, which were these separate charts that presented jukebox popularity, record sales, and airplay. Sort of like little snippet charts versus like the big long list that you would see in something like Billboard. Yeah. To compile their charts, Cashbox employees would contact radio stations around the country and ask them to provide their playlists for the week. From there, the employees would tabulate the number of times a song was played that week and rank it in their jukebox charts. The charting can be very important for new musicians since it can show the popularity and commercial potential for a record. This helps musicians sell records, or in the case of independent artists like the ones that Cashbox often charted, could open the door to big promotion firms and even get a record deal. And I've heard of Cashbox before. Yeah, they're pretty popular. Um, They're since defunct, but that happened in the early 2000s. Okay. Now, you might be asking yourself, hey, how how do you get a radio station to play your song so you can chart? You pay them money. Exactly. You hire a record promoter. And are you familiar with like the, I know you said that you pay the money, but are you familiar with what the record promoter does? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I know a little, but not a lot. So okay. please tell me. So you pay money to hire a record promoter. And this record promoter presumably has a network of contacts at radio stations and in other music related businesses. And they use their network to get you more exposure and airplay for your song. Basically, your record promoter will be the person sending out your records and then calling radio stations to follow up with DJs to see if they could add your song to a playlist. Yeah, that's how you get a certain song playing every 10 minutes because those are the people that have enough money to spend on it. Exactly. Now, the whole record promotion world sounds a little bit sketchy. That's because it definitely is. It is. It really freaking is. totally is. One thing I know is the music industry and it's completely like the odds are stacked against you unless you are rich to start off with well especially if you're an independent artist yes like you need to have a lot of money and like a like a business entity behind you exactly so some record promoters would buy djs off with money or other kickbacks so that their client songs would appear on the playlist that happened pretty often it was sort of an open secret Oftentimes, the clients would actually foot the bull for this. Mm-hmm. So basically, you would give your record promoter a chunk of cash to start promoting your record, and they would take a cut of it before passing it along to the DJs to get your song on the air. 
it's pretty shitty and it's corrupt, but the music industry is all about profit and it's not about music as an art. So that's very true. So there's that. Do you want to make art or do you want to be famous? It's true of music and acting and everything else. Now, Kevin Hughes was not a record promoter. His work was strictly as a chart researcher. However, Richard Tony D'Antonio, who recruited Kevin as an intern and eventually hired him on full time at Cashbox, worked as a chart researcher at Cashbox and then also worked as a record promoter on the side. Oh. Definitely not a conflict of interest whatsoever. Not at all. D'Antonio used his knowledge of calculating the odds, which he picked up as a Las Vegas pit boss, to land a gig as a chart researcher at Cashbox magazine in the early 1980s. He fancied himself a, quote, mafia-type guy. You know, the connected, wealthy, Italian tough guy. Absolutely. He became friends with another well-connected wannabe tough guy during this time, a record promoter named Chuck Dixon. Okay. I don't know that name. He's very, um, his name was pretty well known in Nashville in like the 80s and 90s. Okay. But mostly as somebody who was a little bit sketchy for a record promoter. He'd get Sounds your stuff about on, right for your story so He would far. get your stuff on the air, but it would cost you a pretty penny. Yeah. Now, soon clients of Dixon's began charting regularly at Cashbox. Thanks to some extra special help from D'Antonio. Oh, I'm surprised. Surprised. When Kevin Hughes started his job at Cashbox in the late 1980s, he didn't notice anything that was weird. He didn't see any discrepancies between what the station playlist held and what was published in the magazine. Then, as he started taking over more duties tabulating the charts, he did notice some anomalies. And he thought that was weird, so he decided to apply a more scientific data approach to compiling the weekly charts. Okay. Kevin noticed that most of the songs that topped the charts that were published were from artists who used Chuck Dixon as their record promoter. Gee, I wonder what's going on here. Mm -hmm. But the playlist that Kevin reviewed from their partner stations didn't support the chart ratings given those songs. Now it's kind of clear why he's going to be a murder victim. Yes. Yes, it is. So Kevin started doing some digging, calling radio stations, investing a little bit. That's your first mistake, everybody. (laughs) When you see corruption happening... Turned a blind eye because those people are so corrupt they don't mind murder. But he can't. This is Kevin. He loves Christian music. He's very, you know, exactly. Stand up oh, guy. Kevin. I really like Kevin already because he <laughs> seems like a nice man. And it's just unfortunate because, yeah, I would probably keep digging too. Because once I'm like <gasps> conspiracy, right? I'm just like, no, I need to know more. Uh, unfortunately for Kevin, what he found weighed pretty heavily on him. Most of Chuck Dixon's clients had never had their records played on air. Shit. And this was despite paying Dixon's thousands of dollars for promotional services. Okay, I would be pissed. I don't care that you're saying that I'm like charting on your thing. Mm-hmm. I, I want my music out there so people can actually like me for actually liking me. Well, And that was the thing Dixon would tell his clients. Oh, no, you're on the charts. That's a good thing. Now we can go to these larger record labels and see if they'll pick you up. Oh, God. Okay. And most of the time they didn't. Yeah. Here's the horrible thing, too. The reason that the songs weren't actually played on air was because... Dixon didn't even bother sending them to stations sometimes. Oh, God. So he's lazy as well as corrupt. Well, they figured out how to cut the middleman out, a.k.a. the DJ. Yeah. With D'Antonio's help, they set up a scheme. If an artist wanted to chart, they would need to pay at least $2,000 to get the song charted for one week at Cashbox Magazine. Some clients were charged up to $1,500 to have songs on the charts for several weeks. Hey, this is very similar to the scam email we just got. Mm-hmm. It is. Pay me to promote you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I loved my response. I was like, hey, Nicole, to see your email. I think it's bot, but not sure. 
D'Antonio and Dixon would pocket most of this money, obviously, and use a very small portion to bribe radio DJs to go along with the scheme. In a place like Music Row, where there was a constant flow of fame-seeking industry newcomers, these two guys cleaned up. I'm sure. So many folks they could easily convince to self-fund their own records meant a huge amount of money was generated through this Cashbox magazine scheme. But apparently, they didn't spend enough money bribing those DJs because they straight up told Kevin Hughes, nope, we didn't even see that song come in. Oh god, This is uh, reminding me of when I signed up for this thing before realizing it was a scam. Oh, yeah. There was this author house publishing. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right. And I put my information in, like, wait. As soon as I hit, like, send, I was like, crap, I think this is a scam. Like, someone's going to ask me to pay for stuff. And then, like, I Googled it, and it's like, yup, it's a scam. And then they just keep calling me and sending me emails. They can't pronounce my name right, and they call me Edin. <laughs> and then they um are just like, oh, we're really impressed by your work. You haven't seen my work. I never sent it to you. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Just like a modeling agency that told me they were very impressed by my talent, even though they saw none of my headshots. That's very reassuring that you're that talented. I am. I'm so talented. You don't even need to see me. I'm amazing. <laughs> Obviously, this didn't sit well with Kevin Hughes. He was a pretty stand-up guy, you know, very Christian, and he felt terrible seeing these people who just wanted to make it big in the music industry basically go bankrupt to make their dreams come true. Yeah. By early 1989, Kevin Hughes' friends and family noticed that the young men didn't really seem to be acting normally. He seemed really worn out and tired and even a little bit paranoid. He blamed it on working long hours and over something, quote, at the office, something I've got to make a decision on, end quote. Okay. On March 9th, 1989, Kevin was working late at Cashbox to finish up some of the latest charts. His friend, Sammy Sadler, an aspiring musician who was a client of Chuck Dixon's and had a new song charting with Cashbox. And it sounds like a stage name. Yeah, totally. Showed up to grab dinner. So the two men head out to grab a late night dinner at a nearby Music Row restaurant around 9 p.m. After dinner, Sam needed to make a phone call to his parents. So they stop in at nearby Evergreen Records where Sammy worked. Okay. Sammy was on the phone with his parents when they heard the front door of Evergreen Records being jiggled from outside. Like someone was trying to open it and get in. Uh-oh. Kevin went to check it out and he saw a man who quickly walked away. A few minutes later, Sammy wrapped up the phone call with his parents and the two men headed towards Kevin's car, which was parked on 16th Avenue. Don't get in the car. <laughs> Don't go. As Sammy opened the passenger door to get into the car, a man wearing a ski mask quickly approached and shot Sammy in the shoulder. Oh, shit. Then the man approached Kevin, who started to run the other way. Good, Kevin. Run. Mm-hmm. Run as fast as you freaking can and strafe like a bunny rabbit. Yep. Yep. Always got to strafe. Duck behind something. Yep. Break that line of sight. The man chased Kevin, shooting at him. Sammy luckily managed to find shelter behind a nearby building and watched in horror as the man shot Kevin three times in the back, including Mm. fatally in the back of his head. Poor Kevin. Yeah. The man quickly ran off as several more witnesses rushed to see what was happening on 16th Avenue. The police had a pretty difficult time with this investigation, and they worked several different theories. They explored the idea of a robbery gone wrong, but... Nothing had been taken from the victims. Yeah, obvious. So that seemed kind of weird. Then there was a theory that maybe the killing was a professional hit job. But that also didn't quite fit because the professional killer wouldn't have left Sammy and the five witnesses who saw the shooting alive. Exactly. If you know what you're doing, then you don't leave witnesses. Exactly. 
Compounding the problem for the police was that they could only get a general description of the suspect from Sammy or the witnesses. Basically, they just said it was a guy about this tall, average build, wearing a ski mask and a hat. All right. That sounds like probably half the population of Nashville. There was differing opinions on whether the killer was black or white. They just had no idea. All right. The police thought maybe there was a connection with the dispute at Kevin's work, but there was no evidence that they found at the time to connect the killer, the crime, or Cashbox magazine to Kevin's murder. The only evidence they did have, aside from the witness descriptions, was a hat that the shooter had been wearing. It had apparently fallen off when he was running from the scene. On the hat, police found black cat hair, and the ballistics from the scene showed that the shooter had used a thirty-eight caliber pistol. Okay. Then the case went cold for the next 13 years. Great. At least it's solved because you know I hate my unsolved cold cases but love my solved cold cases. You do. I think that's why you'll like this story in the end. Then in 2002, investigators found the missing links and witnesses to connect Kevin Hughes' murder to Cashbox magazine. A man named Robert Metzger, a producer for independent artists at the time of the killing, came forward in 2000 and said that during a meeting he had with Chuck Dixon, he was asked to pay $1,500 to place two songs on the chart. Metzger mentioned that he was concerned since there were, quote, rumors that Kevin was going to go to the media and expose the chart-fixing scheme that was going on at Cashbox. Okay. Good for him. Mm-hmm. Metzger said D'Antonio was in the room when Dixon replied, quote, I will handle Kevin Hughes, and if I can't handle him, he'll be gone, end quote. Oh, shit. Well, that's incriminating. Super incriminating. Unfortunately, Chuck Dixon died in 2001, so investigators focused their attention more solely on Richard D'Antonio. When reviewing witness statements, they discovered that D'Antonio actually matched the general witness description of the shooter. Okay. One witness even noticed that the shooter had a really unusual side-to-side gait when he walked, and so did D'Antonio at the time, who was he was suffering from a back injury at the time of Kevin's shooting, and it actually made him walk a little funny. Oh, okay, that's good. That's how I solved someone on the Mass Singer once. <laughs> was their weird walk? No, their weird laugh. It, oh. um, I don't remember his name. You'd know him if you saw him. Um, he's like a commentator on football and stuff like that. But okay. he um, he laughs with his shoulders. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You're like that's really distinct. So it's yeah. Police also learned that D'Antonio had owned a black cat in 1989, and a witness came forward with information that he had actually sold D'Antonio a 38 pistol and ammunition similar to that which was found at the scene of the shooting. Then, another witness said that D'Antonio had actually practiced shooting the gun in his backyard on the day Kevin was murdered. Hmm. Police were actually able to recover bullets from the backyard and they were able to match it to the ballistics from the ammo that was used to kill Kevin. Good work. With all this evidence, police arrested Richard D'Antonio for murder and attempted murder. And it was a pretty close and shot case. He would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for those meddling kids. Exactly. <laughs> darn, darn it, that cat. <laughs> he was convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison on November 7th, 2003. And he ended up dying in prison in 2014. All right. So a small note. You mentioned that this sounded kind of familiar earlier. Yeah. If you listen to country music, you may have heard this tale before. It was the inspiration behind the George Strait Alan Jackson single, Murder on Music Row. Okay. The song was definitely inspired by Kevin Hughes' murder, 
and it was released in 2000. It actually reached number 38 on the country music charts, was CMA's Song of the Year, and received a Country Music Association Award for Vocal Event of the Year in 2000. All right. So I probably have heard it before because I've had exes that listen to country. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty pretty big hit. So Yeah. Yep. That's the story of the music girl murder. Just one guy trying to do the right thing and expose a corrupt system that gets gunned down for his trouble. Damn it. It's the most country song that topic is, yeah. ever. <laughs> yeah, actually it is. So Eden, what do you think? Uh, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, I'm really happy that they did bring someone to justice for the murder unfortunately the other guy was already dead Mm -hmm. but you know um but yeah the music industry just like most of the you know entertainment industry things is very corrupt well yeah because it's it's you know about commodifying art and that's always a sticky exactly yeah thing because i mean it's just i don't know i mean even with like take things that are popular like american idol well Mm -hmm. i guess they're not popular anymore but were popular at one time and um, like that was corrupt as hell, too, because you signed this contract where they freaking owned you. Even if you lost, they owned you. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's like ex- exploiting people who have this great desire to like share their art with the world and be famous. So, <sighs> yeah. Sigh. So much for artistic integrity. Mm-hmm. That's what we're a proud independent podcast. Yes. <laughs> so my sources for today were Wikipedia, livability.com, TripAdvisor. Visit Nashville.com, Fox17.com, MusicRow.com, CountryMusicNation.com, AP News, SavingCountryMusic.com, and NashvilleScene.com. Very nice. All right, guys, I guess we're going to take a little break, and then we'll be back with my story. Very excited to see what haunting you have. I got a fun one. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think it'll be pretty good. All right, we'll be right back. Hey Hey guys, guys, Eden and Nicole Nicole here. here. We wanted to let you know about the second annual Pocono Witches Festival, where Roadside Horror Show will be having their very first live show. Come join us at Slippery Rock Resort in Lake Harmony, Pennsylvania for a spooky yet funny show in a haunted location. You can experience all the beauty of Lake Harmony while getting your spooky on with several events, hosted by our friend, the Pocono Witch, E. Massey. Enjoy a spooktacular event that's the third largest of its kind in the tri-state area. Take in a seance with medium Glenda Dawson. Or enjoy a paranormal investigation with Mark Keyes from TV's Paranormal 911 and Virginia Rose Centrillo from TV's The Haunted. Hungry? We've got you covered with a psychic breakfast. And you can finish it all up with a masquerade ball and maybe take part in a Samhain ritual. You can also enjoy a special guest presenter, author Christopher Penzek, as well as a live concert with Metamorph. It's all happening October 23rd to October 25th at beautiful Split Rock Resort. All of those are ticketed events, but will be at the Magical Market on Saturday, October 24th, which is completely free and open to the public. You can find nearly 100 unique vendors with all their own goodies. And of course, you'll you get, get to, to see, see us, us for free. free. So come down to the Split Rock Resort and show us some love. Tickets are available now at PoconoWitchesFestival.com, where you can also find more information about the events. That's PoconoWitchesFestival.com. Come tell us your stories and listen as we tell a few of our own at our very first ever live show. Until then, guys, creep, creep on, on creeping on. We are back. Welcome back. And I have a story for you, Miss Nicole. Oh, yeah? I do. It's a fun one, too. All right, cool. I'm ready. It does not skimp on the crazy. You know, that's my favorite type of story. Exactly. So my story for this week takes place in Red Boiling Springs, Tennessee. 
which already just sounds like it's got something spooky going on. For real? Yeah. That I was like, Red Boiling Springs. Okay, we got to check this one out. Descriptive yet creepy. I know. It doesn't really get much better once I explain the name either, <laughs> which is funny. Uh, red Boiling Springs is named for its red bubbling sulfur water in part of the town. It's like a hot springs. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it's like red and bubbling. It just sounds like the devil is about to come popping out of the hot springs at any moment. For sure. It sounds like the devil's bathtub. Yeah, it's it's pretty scary. Apparently, the town was originally named Salt Lick Creek after an area with a natural salt deposits where like animals would like to eat and then mm-hmm. people would go and hunt. So it was a very well-known hunting spot. The town seems to like the, to name itself after things that it thinks will entice tourists. I mean, that's fair. That's a good strategy to get people to come to your town. Yeah. With Salt Lake Creek, it was all about getting hunters to come over. And with Red Boiling Springs, it was again to attract tourists to the springs. There are rumors of these springs having mysterious healing properties, which are probably unsubstantiated. A woman by the name of Suki Goad drank from the sulfuric springs and was supposedly cured of dropsy okay while her brother washed his eyes in the stuff and claimed that it reduced eye irritation i feel like that's something very common when you have hot springs like medicinal purposes for it yeah but i'm not rubbing sulfur water on my face sounds stinky it's yeah uh my egg face after that my aunt uh she has well water Mm -hmm. and the well, there's something wrong there. I don't know if like it's like snake eggs or what's going on because <laughs> that can account for a sulfur smell or just something with the ground. But um, she calls it her willy water. Her willy water. Yeah. I had a friend growing up who um, lives really close to some natural springs. Like to the point where like if it rains a lot, they'll pop up in his yard. Oh, wow. Okay. But their water is also well water, but it came from a sulfur well. So it was really like great to wash in after it ran through a filter. But like every once in a while, you like wash your hands and it would just smell like sulfur eggs. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, time to change the filter. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's very sulfury. Um, It it smells like SeaWorld and it's not good. Um, So I don't know if these springs actually had any legitimate medicinal properties. Mm Mm-hmm. But I guess you could always go there yourself and find out if you want. Take a little dip. Yeah, why not? Other than the salt and the sulfur, it's a pretty small town with only a little over um, 1,100 residents. And the area is less than two square miles. Okay. So it's very tiny. I'm sure they didn't account for the ghostly residents in my story, though. So there might be a little higher population than you think. Ooh. This is the tale of the Thomas House Hotel. Okay. I'll start off by saying that this place is beautiful. It sits on East Main Street and was originally called the Cloyd Hotel. It sits perched atop the hillside toward the city limits, so you can expect some really nice views if you stay there. The hotel was built in 1927 during a time when, you guessed it because Red Boiling Springs really wants you to come visit, there was a resort boom to try to get more people to come to this tiny town. Out of all the hotels that were brought in at this time, It only has three that are still standing today. Wow. It will also most likely stay that way as it was added to the National Registry of Historic Places in 1986. Cool. If you're wondering what the other two hotels are, they are the Counts Hotel and the, I don't know how to pronounce this, it's D-O-N-O-H-O. Donoho, Donoho. Donoho. Yeah, I don't know. Hotel, both of which uh, have that old southern plantation vibe that's also crazy beautiful. So Mm -hmm. 
after writing my intro and then not wanting to go back and edit it because I was writing these notes in a room with no air conditioning, I found out that the whole town was started as a resort by a man from New York named James F. O'Shaughnessy in the early 1880s. This was a big time for resorts centered around mineral springs, so this place was perfect. Yeah, that makes sense. Like all the, the whole wellness movement and stuff. Oh, yeah. The building itself was built by brothers who also owned the town's general store. Their names were Zach and Clay Cloyd, hence the previous name of Cloyd Hotel. The name change to the Thomas house uh, was when the Thomas family bought it. I couldn't find what year that happened, however, so I don't know. But again, just naming it after the family that owns it. Makes sense. They had built the original structure, which was in the same fashion as the previous hotels that I had mentioned before, in 1890, but a fire broke out and the building burned down in 1924. Yikes. The building we see today is a red brick building with a portico, which is just basically a fancy word meaning a large front porch with columns leading to an entranceway. Uh, Sadly, in the 90s, yet another fire broke out here and took out an entire wing, which had to be rebuilt. I don't know. Between the sulfur and the fire, I'd say that this is a freaking gateway to hell, but I guess that's none of my business. I'll just (laughs) sip my tea because, yeah, that's crazy. So the town went from a tourism hotspot to a sleepy little town after the end of World War II, however, but I'm sure it still gets a lot of attention because of just how haunted this place is. Okay. Now, looking over the hotel's website, the rooms I were able to look at seemed a lot less like a hotel and more like rooms in someone's house or like a bed and breakfast type feel. They were all uniquely decorated and some of the bed frames looked antique, which is pretty cool. It definitely had a nice atmosphere. Cool. I did hear like some stuff about it not being as clean as people had wanted it to be on TripAdvisor, but... I don't know. I feel it's such a common complaint on TripAdvisor. It is. And it may have gotten better now. Who knows? Moy's like grain of salt. It's like Yelp for travel, right? It pretty much is. I will say I think it probably costs a pretty penny to stay here, though, as they did not list pricing for the rooms on their website. So my rule of thumb is if there isn't a price listed, don't bother to ask because you probably won't be able to afford it. <laughs> You're not entirely wrong. Exactly. So continuing on with the warm, inviting, family-style atmosphere of the rooms, the dining room is very much the same way. The website says that they specialized in traditional Southern fare and has pictures of what looked like a long family table with Southern fixings like biscuits and fried chicken. So basically all the good stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was also able to find from another source that all the food served comes right from the property whether it's meat or produce, so you know it's fresh. Cool, so it's like a farm-to-table, all-on-property. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's still that way, but it was at least prior to the current owners. Woodrow Wilson was also said to have stayed here, which I think is pretty cool. They also seem to have dinner theater here as well, according to the website, which I think sounds like fun. The place is known to be extremely haunted and was ranked the number two most haunted place in the U.S. by CNN. When I think of authorities on haunted places, I don't usually think of CNN, but I guess we'll trust them this time. Sure, we'll go with that. The hotel has seen its fair share of owners, including some very eccentric ones. Mm. One owner was a wrestler named Lester Morgan, who actually kept a live bear in the hotel to perform for the guests. And although it might have been something interesting to see, it was, seems kind of dangerous, and I'm sure PETA would have had a field day with it. Yeah, it seems kind of horrible, because like when bears are kept 
to perform. Usually they like have their teeth ripped out and their claws ripped out. It's exactly. Kind of horrible. Yeah. So that's kind of terrible. Exactly. I don't even declaw my cats. Like, yeah, no. He lost the hotel due to a foreclosure in 1974, and for a while before our next wacky owners bought the place, the hotel became a summer camp. Interesting turn of fate. It was called Camp Crystal Lake, and Jason (laughs) stopped. No, it wasn't. I made that up. Uh, But it was a summer camp. It was also owned then by a cult for a little while who just loved contacting spirits. So even if this place wasn't haunted before then, you know it is now. Was the Yellow Deli cult? The Colts, um, I forget what their name is. I'll get to it in a second. Okay. But the Colt purchased the house in the 1980s, and they actually lived in all three of the remaining hotels in town. Oh. They were called the Colt of Anzara. Interesting. The whole town basically is sh- like... <laughs> yeah, I know. What's these cultists in the hotel. What is going on in Red Boiling Springs? It was also just called Red Boiling for a while as well. Hmm. Um, so there isn't much known about this cult other than that they were one of the crazy doomsday cults out there oh. and that they specialized in communication with the dead. That, and that's never led to any sort of creepy paranormal Never haunting. in the history of the world. Well, there was a woman who stayed with them for a while named Penny Good Evans, and she actually wrote about her time among the cult saying, quote, we stayed at all three hotels in Red Boiling at different times but for a few months we lived at the anzara the anzara was the what the cult changed the name of the hotel to okay the one at the thomas house yes i was 17 and very naive i knew nothing of cults or anything like that and wasn't even sure that they were a cult until dateline or one of those shows did a piece on them girl yeah right you sound so young she was 17 we'll give her a break at the time, there was a big, hard-nosed woman who owned the hotel. She was the leader of the cult. And in the beginning, I thought they were just Baptists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Our room was downstairs by the laundry room. I remember some strange people staying there, which I chalked up to just people being strange. My 17-year-old mind was blown one night when my boyfriend went down to the kitchen and saw this, that some people that were staying at the hotel were naked and dancing in the dining room. He ran back to our room like, what the fuck did I just see? <laughs> Understandable. She also went on to tell a story of when they took a bunch of food from the concession stand and after they finished eating it, since by this point they started realizing that they might be staying with a cult. <laughs> uh, they were worried that maybe the food was poisoned and they would both died Jim Jones style. Okay. Yeah. That's quite the leap. Yeah. But they got like really worried about that for a while. Now. The current owners, the Thomas family, don't actually own all of the property of the original hotel. Okay. I don't know what the exact number of acres prior to them having it was, but I do know that the Thomases own around 11 acres of the property. Okay. Still a pretty substantially large property. Yeah. I think they're trying to buy back the church from what I saw on their um, website. I thought they're funding to fix up the church that's on the property. But there was a church on the property that was also built by the Cloyd family as they were Presbyterians. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to build a Presbyterian church on the grounds. They also had a golf course, horse trails, a dance hall, and a bunch of other things, including an outdoor bowling alley, which is something I've never heard of before. I don't know how much of all that remains today, though. Mm. Sounds like definitely the leftover remains of his resort. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, have you ever heard of an outdoor bowling alley? 
No, but maybe I feel like I've maybe seen it in references to like pleasure palaces. Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I played bowling outside with my niece and nephew and they had a little plastic uh i've done ball lawn and bowling pins. yeah yeah <laughs> that's as close as i've gotten though i also kept coming across things that said that multiple suicides and murders have occurred on the property but nothing really followed that would explain any of those in my sources so it's kind of like someone was murdered here but you couldn't find anything else i couldn't find murder. it mm-hmm it does look like the hotel may offer ghost tours as well, and a lot of paranormal groups have explored this hotel, including big names like Ghost Hunters, and I'm sure Ghost Adventures probably did it too because a place can't be officially haunted until Zach comes in to yell at the ghosts. <laughs> Looking over TripAdvisor, because I just like to see if anyone has any good stories, I noticed that most of the headlines for the reviews all mention going there strictly to see ghosts as well. Interesting. So as far as hauntings go... You have some of your basic stuff like objects moving on their own, cold spots, and moving beds when you're trying to sleep. So pretty standard fare. Yeah. People hear loud crashing noises but find nothing wrong when they go to check out the scene. One source actually said that it sounded like dropping bricks, mm. which is weird. People have also seen dark figures in their rooms, so I guess that means like shadow people, which everyone awesome. knows that we just love. The Paranormal Investigation Society of Tennessee's website had some videos, and in the most haunted room, which is room 37, I watched one where I could see shadows moving along on their own, just moving along the walls. What? Yeah, and then a ball that was on the floor started to roll back and forth a little. It was really creepy. Oh, that sounds uncomfortably eerie. Yeah, I've had shadows move on their own in my current bedroom and also in my bedroom at my old house my parents house Mm -hmm. so i'm used to stuff like that and it's never pleasant Mm -mm. people also hear strange unexplained noises and disembodied voices around the hotel so room 37 why is it the most haunted you may ask well i will tell you okay lay it on me there's been the shadowy figure of um and a man seen walking through the door of room 37 and disappearing behind something called the al gore senior chair yeah, I don't know what the Al Gore Senior chair is. Maybe Al Gore Senior stayed there and Maybe. sat in a chair. Weird. I don't know. But room 37 is also said to be the room of a little girl named Sarah, who, according to my sources, is the daughter of one of the Cloyd brothers. Okay. She died young and is said to haunt this room still. I did watch a video on YouTube that was supposed to be an EVP of someone saying, I want to kill you. Mm-hmm. But all I could hear was a little girl's voice saying, I want to, and then the rest wasn't intelligible. Like, you didn't know creepy. what it was. That's so creepy. Um, So I did definitely hear the little girl's voice. Uh, No one really seems to have a problem with Sarah, from what I can tell. So I think she was probably not saying, I want to kill you. Yeah, yeah. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, the ball moving could be her, too, which is interesting. Just trying to play, yeah. yeah. I mean, ghosts got to play too. Mm-hmm. Weird banging can be heard around the hotel as well, but upon further investigation, it could be the water from the pipes banging. Sure. My parents' house had the same issue. You'd turn on the shower, and all of a sudden, there'd be this horrible banging and clanging noise from the pipes. Someone reported seeing a ghostly arm come out of a door and vanish, which is just a big nope for me. What? Yeah, yeah, I don't uh-huh. do well with phantom limbs, thank you very much. Uh, agreed. Yeah, it was just this arm that came out of the door and then disappeared. Mm-mm. Don't like it. 
There was another occurrence of someone saying that they heard what sounded like a person pushing a cart down the hallway, but there was no one and nothing there in the hall with them. I don't like that at all. Yeah. There's also an organ in the hotel, which isn't plugged in, but will sometimes still make noise. That's eerie. Yeah, like it'll play itself kind of. People say that they sometimes get this overwhelming feeling of fear from just being in the place, which could be something supernatural or it might be infrasound like we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. There are some other ghosts on the property as well, but I don't know their names. There's other ghosts who apparently drowned in the hotel pool. There's also the spirit of a man who fell off a horse while staying at the property and drowned in the stream. Hmm. So lots of drowning deaths. There's the ghost of a cook who still haunts the kitchens. There's an unnamed man who guests have seen standing at or near the front desk who then just disappears. Uh, There's also a really creepy ghost of a guy who just whistles behind you in the hallways. No. Yeah, you hear like whistle, whistling following you. I actually wrote that into um, a murder mystery novel that I wrote. So You're like, that's so creepy. I got to use that. <laughs> well, no, it was um, before reading this. Oh. So it was, you know, equally creepy because obviously it was something that would frighten me, which is why I wrote mm-hmm. it. So there's another little girl ghost as well who likes to run down the halls and knock on doors. But when people open their doors, there's no one there. It's said that she came to see or maybe take advantage of the medicinal qualities of the healing springs. There's also a ghost of an old woman who likes to stare at people while they sleep, which, although Ah. I don't think she means any harm, really, that's still just way creepy, and I don't want you staring at me while I'm sleeping. No, living dead, don't stare at me when I'm snoozing. Exactly, yeah, I'm not okay with a living person doing it. I don't want a dead person doing it. didn't even want Santa doing it when I was a child. (laughs) The ghost of a woman is said to be seen walking down the hallways and disappearing after going into the gift shop. So I don't know. Sit through the gift shop, girl. Yeah, right? I don't know what the gift shop was before this, so who knows? Mm. Could have been her bedroom for all we know. Maybe. There were probably more ghostly happenings in this place that I couldn't find, but it was a difficult story to write this week. Not only was I not on air conditioning the entire time, so I just wanted to get it done. But when I was looking for history, all I found was ghost stories. And then when I went looking for ghosts, all I found was history. (laughs) So even typing in the same thing again yielded different results. So I don't know. Maybe this podcast is haunted. Or the hotel is so haunted it even has a haunted online presence. Maybe. Who knows? I'd hate to see its Instagram page. (laughs) Well, that's the story of the Thomas House Hotel. And I hope you all enjoyed it. Would you stay at this one, Nicole? Um, I'm kind of intrigued by this one. The shadow people are weird and uncomfortable. So yes. is the staring old lady. However. And the whistling dude. Yeah, I don't like that at all. But I would check out the town and like the springs seem interesting. I don't yeah. know. I mean, maybe we could have dinner there. Yes. And, and stay in the next to, town over. And then go to the Super 8 down the road. Yeah, right. Uh, my sources for this week, which I have a lot of them because this has took a lot of digging to do this one. Wikipedia. ThomasHouseHotel.com. Oddly enough, a Facebook page called Haunted History, Uh, TripAdvisor.com, GhostResearch.org, LastGasps.com, TheBrandowReport.wordpress.com, Occult-World.com, OnlyInYourState.com. This web address was bigger than my browser, so, you know, I couldn't actually see it, but I got information from the Paranormal Society of Tennessee's website. FrankTuttle.com. NewsChannel5.com, 
talesfromtennesseeandbeyond.blogspot.com, and a few videos on YouTube. Cool. Well, that was an interesting haunted hotel story. Yeah. Um, I liked it because I, I have this thing when I'm like, oh, it was owned by a cult. Like, that's my thing for some reason with hotels. I'm like, I want to know what they did there. Let's find <laughs> out. Then there happened to be a guy with a bear that I liked too. So this hotel has everything. Naking, dancing, cultists, bears in the lobby. <laughs> well, that's what interests me about the uh, the Biltmore Hotel. Yeah. Um, Back in whatever state that was, uh, Rhode Island Rhode or something. Rhode Island. Yeah, it's yeah. in Providence. Yeah, it was in Providence, right? Yeah, because I was just like, there's a cult, all this weird shit happened, <laughs> ritualistic slaughters, murder. All right, let's do this one. I want to go to there. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I want to stay as far away as possible from there. But at the same time, I do kind of want to go to there. So I guess that's our show for this week. Yeah, if you guys like what you heard, if you have any feedback, feel free to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher or reach out to us at our email address. We are roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. You can find us on social media. Uh, we are Roadside Horror Show on Facebook and Instagram and Roadside Horror on Twitter. We'd like to thank the Oxbox Designs for our logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro music. Until next time, Roadsters. Creep on, creeping on. Creepin on.